All right, so the rest of us will turn to Revelation 19. All right, we will continue on in our look of Revelation 19. We have been considering the book of Revelation since the beginning of the year. And uh, again, you see all the, the pictures that are reminders of where we have been. And uh, I've had, uh, over the last two weeks or so, start eliminating some of the pictures. So that will give you something to think about here for a couple minutes while I'm going through the introduction for you to try to analyze which pictures are missing anyways. Um, but they are good reminders of, um, as we've gone through, what we have seen, the, the, um, the letters to the churches, the, the throne room of God, the, um, the seal judgments, if you would, the, the, the works of what have come out of the events and the seals as the seals were opened, the events as the trumpets were blown. We saw then the mighty angel with the rainbow around his head and in the clouds uh, crying out with the thunders coming in chapter 10 and looked at that as potentially the time when the harpazo of the church, the rapture of the church occurred. And then we moved from there into Revelation 11 where we saw the two witnesses. And from there with the two witnesses, we began looking at that last week of Daniel's vision. And the two witnesses were on the earth um, during the first three and a half years of that vision. And then midway through that, they were, they were killed. They were laid out. They were then raptured up. They were taken up into the clouds where the whole world watched it. And then from that point on, we began to, to look at the, the, the events of the beast, how the beast would come on the earth. And we saw that there was a dragon, a red dragon, that, would, that was going to come. And um, it was seeking to, to destroy the man-child from the, from the, from the woman. And, um, and then that was the plans were thwarted. And so he came against the, the, the saints here on the earth. And, so, um, and those who were not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they were going to take the, the, um, the seal of the, of the beast. We're going to take the mark of the beast. And then from there, we, we looked at the, the seven bowls of God's wrath. And that's where we're really at. We're really at the end of the seventh bowl of wrath being poured out. And um, we've then looked at last week, the, or a couple weeks ago, we looked at the, the, the harlot riding the beast. And then last week, we looked at the, the marriage supper of the lamb. And if you remember, as we, we got into this segment in Revelation 19, looking at the marriage supper of the lamb, I said that Revelation 19 was really, I titled it as a, a tale of two suffers. Um, it was the best of time. It was the worst of time. And last week, we looked at the best of times. Last week, we looked at the first supper. We looked at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it was a time of feasting, a time of rejoicing. It was really, if you would, the thing that we look forward to. It's the, the time when we're going to be in the presence of, of Christ, and he's going to lift up that fourth cup of blessing. He's going to say, I will be your God, and you shall be my people. But on the heels of that, on the hills, hills, not the hills, but the heels, the heels of that that dinner, of that feast, of that celebration, the groom, the bridegroom, changes his apparel, if you would, and he becomes the conquering king, because that's who he is. And he takes his bride, that's you and I, along with him to the conquest. And that's where we begin to look at now. We begin to look at the second supper of Revelation 19, and that is the, the carnage supper of the great God. Now, carnage is a really a not necessarily a positive term, but it is a term that adequately describes the supper that God is going to be laying out on the earth at the end times, at the end of Daniel's vision. And so as Steve read Revelation 19, we saw how Jesus Christ is going to come, or how this one on the white horse is going to come, and we want to talk about this king, this king who's going to come, and he's going to have this great conquest. 
And the first thing we want to do is we want to look at the king's entrance. And what does the, the scripture say about the entrance of this king? Well, the first thing we know about his entrance is that how he is described, how his countenance is described. And so we're told, first of all, that he, is, he comes riding a what? A white horse, a majestic white horse. Now, what do we understand, first of all, about the white horse? Throughout time, what, what is white, what's a white horse? It's a victory horse. That's good. That's exactly right, Andrew. And so it's the horse of victory. It's the one that a victor would ride. Now, what's interesting is, again, this goes way back months ago, okay, when, I, um, when we were in chapter 6, I believe it is, with the first seal. Do you remember the first seal, what the first seal was? It was the rider on the white horse. And at that time, I, I made sure that I pointed out that there was going to come a time when we were going to see another white horse later on. But it is not the same white horse, okay? Um, and so it's just that a white horse is a symbol of victory. And that person, that one riding the white horse on this, in the first seal, was going to be, in a sense, a conqueror. He was going to be a victor. Um, he was going to, in a sense, bring potentially bring peace to the world through his conquest, through his, his victories. But he's not going to be Jesus Christ. We see Jesus Christ coming back right now, and again, I'm getting ahead of myself explaining who he is, but we all, I think we understand that coming into this, that, that's who it is. And he's going to come on this white horse. Now, last time we saw him come, entering any place, how did he come? On a donkey. On a donkey. This is really interesting, because prophetically, he's talked about different times coming in different things. Well, the first time he came, he came humble, lowly, riding upon a a donkey. But the next time he comes, he's not going to come with total meekness, but rather he's going to come with great boldness and great authority, and he's going to become riding on this white mount. Okay? Secondly, we're told that his eyes were like a flame of fire. A flame of fire. There's going to be a great brilliance coming from his, his eyes. Okay? Now, I think, again, this is, this is in a sense, symbolic. Now, I believe... No, let me step back for a moment because I, I, I get frustrated so much when I read different people's commentaries and opinions on things, you know. And, and the, the, the ones who believe in an allegorical interpretation and symbolic inter interpretation, um, chewing up literal interpretives, okay, saying, well, yeah, li listen to you. You say you believe in a literal interpretation, and then you do what? You, you figure it eyes and spiritualize everything. I believe that when you translate something literally, when something is an idiom or something is being used, stated figuratively, then it is to be translated how? Figuratively. Literally, figuratively. Does that make sense? So when Jesus said, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, was he telling everybody to come up and start gnawing on him? You know, giving a little puncture thing there and start siphoning out the blood from his vein? No, he was using a, a word picture to these people. So when I interpret that passage in John chapter 6, how am I going to interpret it? Figuratively. It's going to, I'm going to translate it, I'm going to interpret it literally, but in my literal interpretation, it's going to wind up having a figurative meaning. Does that make sense? Well, it's the same thing here. So could, is it possible that Jesus coming on this white horse has eyes that are really got flaming fire coming out of it? Yes, that's, that's entirely possible. But I see this as, a, as John describing the brilliance, the of his, of his eyes coming, and, and I see a little bit of Matthew chapter 6 talking about if that light is in your eyes is darkness, how great is the darkness? Remember we, 
when we talk about Matthew chapter 6, it's in the context of where you're laying up your treasures. Okay? And so the idea is that whatever brings a, a glint to your eye, whatever brings that excitement to your eye, that's your God. That, that's the thing you're serving. You know, what's the thing that you, really makes you excited? Does the word of God make you excited? I, I laugh because I love to teach God's word. And so when, when someone asks me a question, I could go on for hours talking about it. And so when I'm working, I've really got to, to check myself because it would be very easy for me to, to stop and engage in the conversation. And I think people can see that because they, they, they see the what? The excitement that's in me when all of a sudden I start being able to talk about God's word. I think that's the excitement. That's the, that's the, that's the brilliance. That's the flame of fire that you're going to see in Jesus' eyes. It's going to be a fire. There's going to be a, he is on fire. He is ready to come. He's got a purpose. He's got his bride. And now he's coming for the conquest. Does that make sense? So you've got this flame. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His head had many crowns on it. And this is the diadem. This is not just a Stephanus. Okay? A Stephanus is something that you earn in a sense. The Stephanus was, the, was like the laurel that you would have at, at the Olympics. You know, and so you, you jump the furthest, you get the Stephanus. You ran the fastest, you get the Stephanus. The diadem is really, truly, the sign of royalty. And Jesus has the diadem. He is the king. He is the one who is coming. He is the one who is coming with authority and with the reign. Finally, we're told that he is wearing a robe that is dipped in blood. And so you can see this artist's recreation making it red to have it like a red color. But what do you think the robe dipped in blood really symbolizes? This sacrifice. That's exactly right. He has this position. He has this authority based upon his own sacrifice, based upon the shedding of his own blood. He comes based upon, in a sense, if you would, his own authority, his own sacrifice. Now, what's really going to be neat when we see the entourage that's with him is that they're all coming in the white linen, as we saw them in the, in the, uh, at the wedding feast. We don't see us at the wedding feast having um, robes that are dipped in blood. Rather, we see ourselves having fine linen that are clean and bright, that are white. And so we're told in the book of Isaiah, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be made as white as snow, yeah, as clean as snow. Isn't that awesome? And so we're told in the book of Malachi that he comes with the refiner's fire. It's kind of like the launderer's soap is, is the picture that's there that's going to clean us and cleanse us. And so by the blood of Jesus Christ, our uckiness is made pure. But his blood is still there as a symbol of his authority and the symbol of his, um, of his sacrifice. And so he comes with a robe that is dipped in, in blood. And what are we told in Revelation chapter 16 and 17? That when he comes, as well, in fact, earlier in chapter 19 as well, that when he comes, he's coming to bring what? Vengeance. Vengeance for what? The, the, the persecution of the saints, the, the blood of the saints. And so there is a side as well that maybe it's a remembrance. The, the robe that's dipped in blood is a remembrance of the blood of his martyrs. There's a symbolic nature there. So 
the description of his countenance. Secondly, we see the description of his character. Now, what I say the description of his character because we are known many times by what we are referred to as or what we are called. Does that make sense? People call us things at times. People refer to us as, as things at times. Jesus is referred to now here four times. His name, in a sense, is given, something that he is called, four times in just these few short verses. This king, who I refer to as Jesus, is, is referred to now in four ways. First of all, he is called faithful and true. Now, I love this passage because, to me, this is one of the greatest passages right now, the, the coming of the king, on the deity of Jesus Christ. Some of it is behind the scenes here. If you just read it, you'll miss it. This term, faithful and true, is the Hebrew chesed and emet, or chesed wa emet. Okay? And chesed and emet, chesed, if you know, if you've been around me long enough, you'll know that chesed is my favorite word in the entire Bible. Okay? And chesed is my, Bob's translation of chesed, okay, is the faithful, loving kindness of God to the objects of his covenant. Okay? So faithful, loving kindness if, if you, is really what it is. We see it translated as mercy, loving kindness, faithfulness, love. Did I say mercy yet? Mercy. Okay. Anyways, it's translated numerous different ways. Emet, the word emet is translated as the word true, as the word faithful, as the, um, anything that's in that diligence. The word emet means um, to be true, like the plumb line is true true. So being that it's true, it is faithful. Do, 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 does that make sense? You can, you can know that something is right because the plumb line is true or faithful. So do, do you get how those are there? Because we're going to be looking at some verses here about this. Um, and you're going to see that these words chesed and emet sometimes are going to seem to be almost switched backwards. Okay. And so we see in Psalm 25, verse 10, and you've got a lot more verses than this on your, on your sermon note sheets, okay? But in Psalm 25, verse 10, we see that all the paths of Yahweh are chesed and emet, to such as keep his covenants and his testimonies. They are mercy and truth. In Psalm 26, verse 3, for your chesed, your loving kindness, is before my eyes, and I have walked in your emet, your truth. Psalm 40, verse 10 and 11, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart, I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your chesed and emet, your loving kindness and your truth, from the great assembly. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord, O Yahweh. Let your chesed and emet continually preserve me. Psalm 57, verse 3. He shall send from heaven and save me. He, sh he reproaches the one who would swallow me up. Selah, or meditate upon this. God shall send forth his chesed and emet, his mercy and his truth. For your chesed, reaches unto the heavens and your emet unto the clouds. We just sang that this morning, remember? The, about the, and now I can't even come up with a song, but we sang that, it was one of the first songs. Be exalted, O God, in the heavens. Anyways, but that, that's what we sang, your chesed and emet. Okay, and in Psalm 85, mercy and truth, chesed and emet, have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed. And again, we could go on and on. Chesed and emet really brings everything that God is, his, his holiness, his set-apartness. It's because of his chesed and because he is faithful and true. There is no changeableness with God. Why? Because he's chesed and he's faithful and true. 
He is continually set apart. Why? Because he is faithful and true. His love is, is, not, an, is not questionable. Why? Because he's faithful and true. Do you get it? And so when, when this king comes, the first thing that he's known by, the thing that he is called, the thing that he is referred to is chesed nemet. Chesed nemet. Well, who is chesed nemet? Yahweh. Specifically, Yahweh. And we know that Yahweh is, is God. But specifically, coming through here, look at this. It's Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Oh, you, Yahweh. And then finally we have God. God sent forth your chesed nemet. So the one who is chesed nemet, the one who is referred to continually in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, okay, and that John would understand when this was being stated, because it's a Hebrew idiom, is being referred to as Yahweh. Do you get it? I mean, if, if that was all it was, and we stopped right there, who's the king that's coming? Yahweh. But we're told back in Revelation 19 as well that because of this chesed nemet, because of this faithful and true, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Look back at verse, verse 11. He's going to what? How is he going to judge and make war? In righteousness. Okay? Turn back to, to Isaiah 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And let's look at verse 3 to, f 3 to 5. I just love this. I mean, the imagery that's being put here. So much prophecy that is being brought together. In fact, I'm going to read, start at verse 1 for context here. Verse 3 to 5 is the, the verses there. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of Yahweh shall, be, shall rest upon him. This is the sevenfold spirit. The spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Remember that. And with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Isn't that awesome? When he comes, when he comes, and even now, how does he judge? In righteousness. Why? Because of his chesed nemet, because of his faithfulness and his trueness. Because he cannot turn. He cannot turn from that which is right. We understand that the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and Self-control, temperance or self-control. Do you understand that the fruit of the Spirit is that which is derived from the Spirit? Do we say that God is love? Is he joy? Is he long-suffering patience? Is he ha are, are all these attributes that, are, that are belong to God? So then self-control is as well. It's one we don't think about with God. But God is faithful and true. He cannot diverge. He has perfect self-control. Do you get it? God is not limited. He's only limited by what? By his own character. That's by himself. That's exactly right. And because he is faithful and true, I can trust him. I can trust his every judgment. God doesn't lie. He's not, you know, for me, it's not like, oh, God just kind of, he, he had a brain, brain spurs. You know how, how we have that sometimes? We kind of like, why did I do that? God doesn't have one of those things. He doesn't say, why did I do that? God is faithful and true. I, I just, anyways, 
I gotta leave this one. That's a message. I mean, I could spend a whole couple hours on faithful and true. But he's called by a name that no one knows except himself. See, he's got a name that nobody knows except himself. I'm mindful of, of Jacob when he was wrestling back in Genesis 22 with the, the, the spiritual being, the angel, the, the whatever it was. Well, we know what it was or who it was. Who was, who was it that Jacob wrestled with? Jesus, with God in the flesh, Jesus. And Jacob says, what's your name? And this spiritual one says what? Don't ask me. Why do you ask me a name? But I'm going to give you a new name. <laughs> you used to be Jacob, and now you're Israel, because you have struggled with God and prevailed. Isn't that awesome? And so, and so Jacob understood who he was, because he says, oh, man, I've seen God face to face. Now, did he see God, the eternal one? No, he saw the what? The representation. He saw the manifestation. He saw the anthrop anthropomorphism of God on the earth. And that's the Jesus. When Jesus came, he was, the, he was the incarnation of God on earth. And so the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons, they don't get it when they say, well, nobody's seen God at any time. I mean, if Jesus was God, then you say, no, Jesus is the, the image. That's what we're told in the book of Colossians, that in him the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily it's a mystery as his name is a mystery and i think that that this name that we're told about right here is to remind us that we fully don't comprehend everything there is to comprehend about jesus he still has a name that nobody knows isn't that neat what do you know about god now, don't start giving me a laundry list. I'm asking for one statement. What do you know about God? Only enough, okay. But you only know what he has revealed about himself. Do you get it? I mean, we think we know it all. We, I mean, we, we got theologians who are studiers of God, and they got God in a box. And they've, I mean, they've got, I mean, you got the outline down about God. But the reality is the guy who knows the most still only knows what? what God has allowed them to know. And when we think that we've got it all down pat, it just shows how much we really don't, we don't know. Thirdly, he's referred to as he's called Word of God. Now, you all know this one, right? Where does this come from? John 1. That's right. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Wait, stop. Greek class. And God was the Word. Remember, in the Greek, proper translation, God was the Word. It's not in the Word was with God. It was, it's not in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's God was the Word. That's how it is in the Greek. It's, it's more powerful. It really is. It's, it's amazing. It's, I always love that part of the Greek class when I start having to translate John 1, and all of a sudden I realize, whoa, it's God's the Word. Yes. I mean, it's, I mean this is a no-brainer. When a Jehovah witness comes to your door and a Mormon comes to your door, I mean, this is a no-brainer. I mean, this is a knockout punch. It's not that, that the Word is a God. God is the word. I mean, it's a definition of who God is. God's the word. And so we're told that the word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. So we already have the equation that God's the word. If God's the word and the word became flesh, that means that God what? Be flesh and dwelt among us. 
and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you know what the predecessor for the word grace is? Chesed, that faithfulness again. Full of chesed nemet, full of chesed nemet. It's awesome. It's the, it's the picture of who God is. And so this word of God comes. Now, he's called the word of God because that goes back even a step further, doesn't it? Where does, where does John 1 really parallel? Genesis 1. Because in the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth, and how did he great, create? He spoke it into existence by his word. He spoke it into existence. He said it. And so here we have the word of God, the breath of God, the one who came. This is just exciting stuff to me. So what else is he known by? Well, he's also called the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter six. We'll start at verse twelve. Verse fifteen is the one we're looking at. Paul tells Timothy, "Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you, in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Jesus Christ, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until the." Our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the what? King of kings and Lord of lords. I always want to, again, sing all these passages where we have these Messiah songs, you know, King of kings. Anyways, it's just exciting stuff. And who he is, he is the king. He is God. He is, he is the one eternal. And as God eternal, as the king, he is the one who has what? All authority. He is, has all authority. And that's the second thing we want to look at in this king's entrance. It's not just his description, but his dominion. His dominion. And what do we see as his dominion as we come into verse 14? Well, the first thing it talks about his dominion. Everybody know what a dominion is? It's what you have, what? The reign over, right? The thing you rule over. Well, what's the first thing we know about his rule? Well, he comes with an entourage. Okay? Who's his entourage? Who's the king's entourage? We're not told they're saints right off the bat. What are we told? Literally. No. The armies of heaven, the hosts of heaven. I like that they put the word host there because the idea, it's the armies of heaven. Okay? And many times we, when we talk about the angelic hosts, okay, the Lord of hosts, we, we think of the, those angels as being um, as a choir. you know, And they're not. They're, they're military units. Okay? They're armies. Well, here... This army is coming how? What are, they, what are they arrayed in? What are they clothed in? Fine linen, that's what? White and clean. Now, if you go back up earlier in chapter 19, we read that in verse, um, I thought I had it written there, up in verse 8, that the bride was arrayed in fine linen, clean and what? Clean and bright. Okay? And so we're told that these people who are coming more than likely are who? The saints. Now, we're told earlier in the book of Revelation as well, in chapter 2, verse 26 to 27, to, to one of the churches, that if they would overcome, that they would be able to reign with Christ. 
So these are the ones that are coming. These are you and I. These are the saints. Hopefully you and I. Okay? If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you're part of the bride, and here you come with your, with your bridegroom to the, um, to the conquering. To the, to the, and uh, the best thing about this war is what? A, you're going to win, yes, but you're not going to even fight. You're not even going to fight. You're going to come, and I mean, it, I mean, you're really coming for the, for the parade. I mean, this is, you're an entourage. I mean, you're the army, but you're really an entourage at this point. Because he's, I mean, we're going to see this in a moment, he's not going to need you. And that leads me to a point. God doesn't need me. Do you get it? The victory's already his. He's already won. His kingdom will be and is established. However, he does want to use me. Does that make sense? Sometimes we think that God needs me. God doesn't need me. He wants me. He wants that relationship with you. You're the bride. And as the groom desires the bride, so he desires you. His entourage, then, is we see is th their identity is the saints. But secondly, we see his, his authority. It's noted by his authority as he comes. Note the authority, first of all, in his word. And you say, well, how do you get the word? Well, because it says, verse 15, that out of his mouth comes a what? A sharp sword. Now, again, the picture here, the artist has this sword kind of coming out, and it's kind of this translucent sword coming out. I, I think the idea is like in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, right? The word of God is what? It's quick, it's alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Meaning what? What's it able to do? It's to, able to divide asunder between the soul and the spirit, between the bone and the marrow. And it's, an, it's an exposer, it's a discerner of every thought and intent of the, of the heart. And when Jesus was on the earth, when he spoke to, to the Pharisees and he spoke to, to the Sadducees and the Herodians and he spoke to the sinners and the people who were around him, he had the uncanny, quote-unquote, ability to know what they were thinking, to know what was in their hearts and to be able to use the sword use the scalpel if you would to be able to bring the truth right at them and to be able to if you would cut them where it hurt now for some it was surgical does that make sense he was removing the dross he was removing the cancer he was removing the tumor whatever it, it took and as we referred to this morning in Sunday school, that, that paralytic boy who Jesus said what? Your sins are forgiven. He took out the sword and it acted more like a what? A scalpel. It was surgical. And what happened to the boy? He got up and walked away. But when he says your sins are forgiven, what did he really tell him? You're forgiven, but read between the lines what came before it. He didn't state it, but it was there. I'm able to forgive sins, but you are what? You're a sinner. <laughs> You're in this situation because of your sin, because of what you've done. Remember when they came to Jesus and they asked about the blind guy? Whose sin is it? And he says, not because anybody's sin is for the glory of God. He didn't say that with the paralytic kid. He said what? 
your sins, man. Your sins have brought you here. This is a result of your sins in front of everybody. He let them know it's a result of sin. And he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And at that point, that boy had the opportunity to do what? Respond to the surgery and, and, or not, right? I mean, it's like the person, and we've all probably known people who have had their surgeries but have lost the will to live, and they refuse to do what? Get up and walk and, 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 and get you know, the physical therapy going and getting the mobility happening again, right? My grandma was a lot like that, you know, with all the hip replacement, knee replacement, stuff like that, just didn't have the will to live. But this guy got up and walked. But to others, he called them what? Whitewashed sepulchers, vipers, right? That wasn't a, uh, that wasn't a scalpel. That was a sword. Them there were fighting words. Make sense? But he used them with what? The same authority that he used a scalpel. And so out of his mouth proceeds this sword, if you would. Okay? This power, this, this tool of power that comes. And he has authority with his words. The same sword, if you would, the same mouth that said to the, to the, to the storm, be still. And it was. It's the same mouth that said, let there be light. And there was. It's the same mouth who will say, be destroyed. And they will be. The same God who gave you the breath of life is the same God who can snuff it out at his choosing. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are just a, a mist, a vapor? Here today, gone tomorrow. As the flower grows and, and blooms and yet is scorched by the heat. Your days are numbered. You're not going to live forever. And though I don't have to fear the wrath of God from this side of it, the reality is I also acknowledge the fact that what? When my time is done, God has the authority and the right to do what? Take me home. Take me home. But his authority, his dominion is displayed here, is noted by his words, by his, this, this um, sword that's going to be coming out of his, his mouth, but also by his works. We're told that this sharp sword's going to come out, that he should strike the nations. Now, I'm going to come back to that, that term in a moment. We saw that a little bit in Isaiah 11, okay? He's going to strike the nations, and he himself will what? Rule them. I want to come back to that word. Rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierce, fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. This, again, this terminology that's being used is neat terminology that potentially we're missing the fullness of. This word to rule is the word poimene, poimene, which means to shepherd. Poimeo is the shepherd. The poimas, poimene, is the shepherd. I'm a shepherd. And so this ruling is to rule like a shepherd. And it brings in the imagery of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Who's the Lord? Yahweh. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He doesn't coax me. He doesn't woo me. He doesn't encourage me. He what? 
makes me, because there's sometimes I won't. I just, I, I just, I won't rest. And so I remember when God broke my foot, so I would. And, um, and so he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, in other words, I put myself there, I what? I fear no evil. Why? For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do you know what the rod and the staff are? They're the tolls of discipline, if you would, of the shepherd. It's the end, the pointed part of the staff, the rod, that he pokes and prods you with. He pushes the, you know, pricks the, the sheep in the you-know-what to get him to go the you-know-where, you know, wherever he wants them to go. And it's the other side, the little rounded part on it, they can grab their necks and, and pull them out of places. It's, it's a tool of discipline. It's, it's, a, it's a tool of chastisement many times. This is the picture. You're going to shepherd the nations. You're going to roll them with a rod of iron. Not breakable. Not bendable. It's there. And with it as well, in that and the sword, you're going to what? Strike the nations. You're going to strike the nations. This word strike is, is used in the book of Acts when Peter is sleeping in the prison. And the angel comes to, 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 to free him. And he's you know, kind of thinking he's seeing a vision. And we're told that the angel strikes him. Basically, the angel comes up and does what? Slaps him. <laughs> says, get up. Let's go. It's time to go. You know, he's thinking he's seeing a vision. And the angel lets him know it's physical. <laughs> You know, whack. <laughs> That's the picture. He strikes them. He's going to strike the nations. He's going to slap them, if you would. There's two sides of that. There is the chastisement side, the destroying the side. That's the, the fierceness of God's wrath, the, the, the wine press, the trading of the wine press of God's wrath. But there are nations who are going to enter into the millennial reign of Christ. Those are slapped too. Do you get it? They're getting to go into the into the millennium. We'll talk about that. But they're still, in a sense, on the earth. Get it? They're not believers. They've just chosen to do what? Not be a part of the beast thing. I know. That's mind-boggling. But there are nations who are entering into the millennium who aren't necessarily all believers. Because we're told in the prophe prophecies that when a nation doesn't choo chooses not to come and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, what's going to happen? He's going to withhold rain from them, which tells me that there will be nations, even during the millennium, that are what? Rebellious. And that's something to think about, huh? Christ and the earth. We'll talk about that next week when we talk about the millennium. Okay? But his authority. We see it in his words and in his works. And finally... We see the king's triumph. His coming, he's coming in the clouds, if you would. He's coming from heaven with his entourage behind him. That's us, the saints. And he comes, and he's, he's, he's brought the, before him, coming before him is his, his herald, the angel, who's crying out with a loud voice, the invitation. It's a different invitation, isn't it? See, last week we saw the invitation to, to everybody to come, right, to be a part of the bride. 
Well, who's this invitation's to? All the, all the birds and the beasts, yeah. And, and, and they're, they're being invited to a grand feast. What are they going to feast on? Say again. The flesh of men, the flesh of the nations who have joined together to fight against God and his people. And so we see his herald, his herald bringing forth this invitation to the supper. And what about the host of the supper? Who does he say is the host of this supper? No, not the angel. The angel doesn't say it's himself. The angel says it's the it's the it's the it's the great supper, uh, the supper of the great God, the, the mega the Im, oh, invitation of the supper, and then the host of the supper is the megaluseu. Catch up to me here, the great God, okay. And we see th- this great God. Actually, a better translation would be the mighty God, okay. And we see this in Isaiah nine verse six: For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called the Wonderful Counselor. I don't believe there's a comma between Wonderful and Counselor. That's Pele Yuitz. It goes together. And Yahweh is referred to as the Pele Yuitz elsewhere. He is the, the, the um, El Gabor. He is the Mighty God. He is the, the, the Aviad, the, the Everlasting Father. And he is the, the Tsar Shalom. He is the Prince of Peace. Each one of those are used only of Yahweh as well, of God. And that's who he is. And so we see in Isaiah 10, verse 21, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the Al-Gabor, the mighty God, the great God. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, For Yahweh, your God, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes pride, nor bribes. Jeremiah 32, verse 18, You show loving kindness, know what word that is? Chesed. To thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers in the bosoms of their children after them, and the great, the mighty God, whose name is... Yahweh Shabbat, the Lord of hosts. Remember the armies, right? And so, again, there's other verses on your sermon note sheet. But the fact is, again, this is a reference to who Jesus Christ is. In the book of Titus, Titus says we're looking forward to the appearing of our great God, our Megalutheu and Savior, who? Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? And so when this great God comes, the mighty God comes, who is it? It's Yahweh. And we're told that that is who? Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes, this one who's coming is God in the flesh. This is an exciting thing. And so we see then his opponents. Who are his opponents? It's the gathering of the nations. And where are they being gathered? Armageddon. 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 And we talked about this a few chapters ago when we talked about where Megiddo was and how it was there. And remember, it was the, the battlefield that's, that's been there. And all the, the nations are going to be gathered together to fight against God. To fight against God's people. But when they go up against God's people, it ultimately becomes God's battle. And we're told then that Jesus is going to come He's going to fight for them because turn back to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah 12, it's the next to last book of the Old Testament. And there are 14 chapters in Zechariah, so it's not very far, only about six chapters or so from the New Testament. I'm sorry, Zechariah 12, yeah. Eight, eight chapters. Zechariah 12, verses 1 to 4. We'll start there. 
It says, The burden of the word of Yahweh against Israel. Thus saith Yahweh, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. That gives us a definition of who this guy is, right? Okay. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all the peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, saith Yahweh, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah, and I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Drop down to verse 9. It will be, it shall be, in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now get what he's saying. It's all first person, first person. They will look upon me, first person, whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him. Him? And grieve for him, third person. Yahweh's letting us know that there is a personification of himself, that he is coming to the earth. There's a mystery that we can't fully comprehend. But the one that hung upon that tree was Yahweh, in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. Drop down to chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of Yahweh is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Drop down to verse 9. And Yahweh shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, Yahweh is one, Echad. In his name, Echad. Which is really kind of fun because back in the Shema, back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It says, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Echad. It says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it says right here in the end, it'll be known that Yahweh is one, and his name is one. And so when he comes and he reigns, everybody will understand this triunity thing is not a, a, a fiction made by Christians. There's really three gods. There's not three gods. There's one God. You just don't what? Get it. I don't get it. I believe it. I know it's true. Can I fully comprehend it? I can't comprehend it. But one day my faith is going to be what? Sight. Awesome stuff. Drop down to verse 12. And this shall be the plague which Yahweh will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh tell, shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets. Fun stuff, isn't it? And their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from Yahweh will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. 
Judah will also fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. What's going to happen? When Yahweh comes with us, the host behind him, how's the war going to happen? It's going to be very similar to what happened to the Assyrian army in the days of Hezekiah. You remember when Rabshakeh came, Rabshakeh came and, and, he, and he said, you know, nobody's been able to stand up against my master. None of the gods can stand up against You're Yahweh. He's nothing. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. you, you he, you're not going to be able to stand up against him. Well, all of a sudden, Tiglath Eliezer, I think that's who it was at that point, said he heard, he thought he, that the Ethiopians were coming. And so he fled and he went back. Right? But then he comes back and he, and he battles again. And so God says, enough's enough. Right? And so they come up to Jerusalem. And while they're, they're camping against Jerusalem one night, what does God do? He sends out the angel of death. And in one night, 180,000 Assyrian troops were killed. One of the greatest lines in the whole Bible is when they rose up, they were all dead. Anyways. So <laughs> when they rose up, they were all dead. Anyways. The idea is when Jerusalem woke up, the Assyrians were all dead. But anyways, they were dead. And so who found them that day? Do you remember? The lepers found them because they weren't allowed in the city. So the lepers go out and say, well, I might as well go over to the Assyrian army and die. I mean, if, even if they kill us, let's, you know, at least we, we die, you know, or out of our misery. They go over and they find out, you know, oh, wait, no, wait, that's the time that they all fled because they get to eat everything. That's right. Sorry, I'm mixing stories up. But they all die. 180,000 die that very night in one night. How does it happen? God. How did it happen in Egypt? God. How does it happen here at Armageddon, at this battle of Jerusalem? God. And somehow he sends a plague among them that brings total confusion to their mind, and it, and it melts their eye sockets in their mouths, and they start fighting against one another. I'm mindful as well about the, the battle of, of Gideon when, he, when God pared it down from thousands to 300. And they stood around the camp and they, they crashed the jars and, and held up the, the flame and, and burst the trumpets and they said, for the Lord and for Gideon. And, and the Midianites did what? They, they killed each other. They were filled with confusion and they killed themselves. That's what's going to happen in Armageddon. That's what's going to happen in this great battle. I don't think you or I are going to will the sword, have to pull out the sword and other than to say, yeah! And the war is going to be over. This is an anticlimactic. <laughs> I was kind of get to the end here. You kind of think, you know, there's going to be this, you know, it's like in the movies, you know, there's going to be this great big war and a big fight going on and, and the, the victor is going to conquest just at the end. No, this is better than that. There's not even a war, except for the enemy's going to fight, fight themselves, and we're going to see the big victory. So there's going to be the judgment in the end here, in this victory. There's going to be the, the, um, the judgment of the beast and a false prophet. Jesus is going to capture them, and he's going to throw them where? In the lake of fire. Isn't that something? In the lake of fire. They get the first, first dabs. Okay, And then secondly, we see the slaughter of the nations, as we just read about. And Jesus Christ will reign victorious.
then you and I, being in his entourage, will reign with him. I don't know how. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But we know that we'll be with him. And so my question to myself and to you, and that is, who is Jesus to you? Who is this, this man, this teacher, this prophet? Is he God? Is he the King of kings, the Lord of lords? Is he the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace? Or is he just a, a rally point for your morality? God was a, was a rally point for the, for the morality of the Pharisees. And Jesus called them whitewashed sepulchers. But who is Jesus really to you? Will you be a part of his entourage? Will you be a part of the, the army, the host that is coming with him? Secondly, we're called to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so would you be described in that light being faithful and true? Would you be chesed nemet? Are you unchanging, unwavering in your faith? As we talked about in Sunday school this morning, staking, the, staking your claim that your faith is staked out. Are you unwavering? Are your decisions, as Jesus's are, conducted in righteousness? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for you. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. Lord, I'm thankful that you are said and met, that you are faithful and true, that you are unchangeable, and that we can rely upon you. I thank you, Lord, that in that as well, your prophecy your declarations of what are going to occur are faithful and true as well. You will come back one day. You will gather us to be with you. You will return after the marriage supper to take reign upon the earth. And when the nations of the earth rise up against you, you will strike them with even just the breath of your mouth. For you are God. You are the one who has breathed the breath of life into us, and you are the one who can surely sap it back out. God, I pray that you would help us to worship you in the beauty of, of your holiness, that we would desire to be conformed to your image and likeness, that we would desire to be the representatives, the ambassadors that you've called us to be. Lord, be magnified, be glorified in our midst. Help us, as we prayed earlier, to worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in the hymnals.